the university sends this strong message of Western scholarship and a kind of dominance of a political and religious ideology that in many ways obviates everything Indigenous, but it all sits right on top of what is Gadigal country, never ceded by the Gadigal people. So it's an opportunity to also bring the local people's voice into the university. The university is surrounded by two big Aboriginal communities, Glebe and Redfern, and indeed all over Sydney there are Aboriginal communities. So I think it's uh, an opportunity to really engage with that voice. Hi everyone, my name is Jennifer Fern. I'm a senior lecturer at the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning, and I will be hosting today's episode of the City Road podcast. As part of the European Architectural History Network conference, we're featuring a few podcast episodes with international academics in architecture who are visiting Sydney. In this episode, we will be speaking with Professor Mark Yarsenbeck from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Mark teaches in the Department of Architecture at MIT and is one of the founders of the Global Architectural History Teaching Collaborative, or GATCH. He is a leading advocate of global history, and he was the first to teach a MOOC on the history of architecture, with thousands of participants worldwide. His most recent book is entitled Digital Stockholm Syndrome in the Post-Ontological Age, published by the University of Minnesota Press. Professor Jackie Troy is the Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. Her expertise includes documenting, describing, and reviving Indigenous languages. She's currently working on the Indigenous languages of Pakistan. Two of her current projects are also focused on the history of Aboriginal missions and reserves in Eastern Australia and the history of non-institutionalized Aboriginal people. The other project is about the practice of the Korribee by Aboriginal people in the assimilation period of the mid-20th century. She was part of the Narragoo community from the Snowy Mountains. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Jackie. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. We hear often around the world, in fact, internationally, not just here in Australia, about the term decolonizing the curriculum. Mm. And this is quite a popular term. I guess for you, what does it mean um, in terms of how to decolonize a university curriculum? How do we do that? What does it mean when um, staff and academics are called upon to add in non-white scholars, post-colonial works to be included in their, their higher education? Well, I personally struggle with the term colonisation on a on an individual basis and also, I guess, for my communities because we wouldn't exist if we'd been truly colonised. I think of colonisation as this biological model where if a tree falls to the ground and is then colonised by particularly fungus, which then turns it into a fungus, so a mighty tree that's had another life and another way of being becomes a fungus and the fungus are in themselves you know important life forms um, closely related to humans so I, I really struggle with this idea of colonization but I don't struggle with it when it comes to um, our education system in Australia in general it is it is a colonization it it is the imposition of this fungus from the West called Western education on top of uh, you know it may be now, 120,000 years of human 
occupation of what we now call Australia, uh, 120,000 years of developing wisdom and knowledge about this country, of course, changing all the time, doing the sort of things scholars always do. Aboriginal people, of course, are scholars in the same way that all humans are. But it's we're sort of, again, um, we're rubbed out by this the imposition of these other traditions, which are really quite recent, actually, of Western scholarship, that have their own traditions in much more ancient practices of scholarship, but they're not fully recognised. You know, I walk around the quadrangle, which is the grand statement of Sydney University, and it's full of references to Islamic architecture, to, um, you know, we have sunken gardens, you know, sort of little pleasure gardens in that quadrangle. We've got um, the presence of plants from the Himalayas. We've got the Gothic gargoyles, uh, you know, from a sort of ancient so-called pagan tradition. You know, it's, it's, it's a place that wants to be something that it really isn't. It's struggling to break out of it. And there's one gargoyle on the quadrangle that is a kangaroo. It's the only indigenous or the only Australian... I guess, reference apart from the beautiful golden sandstone, which is, of course, Sydney sandstone. Uh, For me, to decolonise the university is actually really to make people open their eyes and see what is actually on the ground where Sydney University sits. It's the Gadigal people's country there to bring their thinking in. Um, I've worked myself with the community here to get their language going again. So to hear the language of Sydney spoken, spoken, the language of the, the Aboriginal people of the Gadigal clan where Sydney University sits, you know, why don't we have this language used in all our literature to do with the university? Why aren't we explaining ourselves as a place sitting on Aboriginal country? So for me, that's what decolonising is. And I think that every body who teaches or researches at this university really doesn't have to make much of an effort to think, okay, what is it that I want to think about and incorporate in my own thinking, in my own teaching, my own research that comes from um, our Indigenous Australian thinking, which is still there. You don't have to look for it. It's there. So speaking of kangaroo gargoyles and architecture, <laughs> I'd like to bring Mark into this part of our conversation, which is, you know, speaking of decolonizing curriculum, you run this uh, really wonderful organization called the Global Architectural History Teaching Collaborative at MIT. What has Getch done really to further some of these maybe same questions that Jackie has raised and how do they apply to architecture? Uh, well, the Global Architectural History Teaching Collaborative very important part of the word there, um, was sort of designed as a teacher-to-teacher platform because uh, at some moment uh, when you start teaching survey courses or start teaching audiences that are very complicated, you realize this, the, the training that we have is sort of inadequate to the complexity of the, of the world. And so there are some options. You can just sort of say, well, I'm just going to feed you my little expertise knowledge and you're going to have to get the rest of it from somewhere else but good luck with that right um, or I'll invite some other expert um, with some you know uh, authentic voice and they're going to come in and 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 do that and neither of those seem particularly satisfying so we wanted to sort of say that part of the role of the teacher is autodidactical you have to really learn some of this material yourself. You can't just sort of export it to some other form of expertise. You don't have to become yourself an absolute expert in 
all the places all the time, but you have to at least step into uh, the sphere of sort of not knowledge mm-hmm. and, and ambiguity and anxiety of, of what that means. And there, in that sort of strange space of not knowing and then learning, you're sort of putting yourself a little bit in the place of people who have been excluded, who or have wondered why their voices aren't there. Because all of a sudden you realize, well, they might not be there, but my voice is also, weirdly, has also been silenced, right, by my own training. So it's not parallel, but there's a sort of a capacity to sort of begin to sort of see relationships of how to teach across borders of 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 of, uh, lacks, uh, of lack right of familiarity and so forth for me the i mean the whole thing started i mean i had my phd eurocentric phd i didn't even once think about it um through particularly critical terms even though my generation we were all into theory and reading foucault and derrida and all the all the type of stuff right <clears throat> but then when i realized i had to teach a survey course at cornell and when i arrived in, uh, in 1988, that prepared me not one iota <laughs> of teaching. And I had to sort of start all over. So my, you know, you know, the reason I'm here is only because I basically dedicated 40 years of trying to get rid of the education that I had in the past and critique it, which is so not everyone wants to do that, right? And not everyone maybe is, has that desire, right? But it is really something I think that uh, hopefully one can sort of chart in the academic environment, right? And it's something we need to sort of champion. So I, you know, I was began to learn about the post-colonial critiques, right? And that took some time, right? Oh, you know, you know. And then the, our question of Native American culture, you know, comes up. And then I realized I come from the state of Massachusetts, Massachusetts. And not once did anybody ever ask who were these people, right? Mm-hmm. So three summers ago, I mean, you know, I'm admitting it was three summers ago. I mean, that was like, it sort of dawned on me, how come I don't know anything about it, right? You know, um, and why wait for somebody to do it? So I went to the former Massachusetts uh, tribal uh, hill where the chief one was, because we know from descriptions that's where it was. And oh, it's a bit of the size of a um, football field something like that. It's a beautiful hill, beautifully sited on the bay, overlooking the bay, and you can just sort of imagine. And it's uh, basically a dog park. People go there and their dogs shit all over the place. And there's one little brick uh, plaque and says, this is the site of the Massachusetts uh, uh, chief, uh, chief uh, hut. <clears throat> and, that's, and that's it. And, you know, so I go to my history class and I say, oh, you know, we're, we're, why are we called Massachusetts, right? You know, what does that mean? You know, they didn't exist anymore. They're, they'd all died out, you know, in the plague. So, in the smallpox. So, uh, we, why, why did, you know, what's, what's that strange thing, right? <clears throat> and so it's not just an historical question, right? Then I do it in the theory class, you know. I say, well, what, what would it be to sort of now visit this site and think about it theoretically? Because there's, there's no theory that you're going to read that's going to help you understand this, right? You, we can just sort of throw all that out of the garbage, right? So every, I send everybody down there. I'm wandering around, right, and, and ask him, okay, what would what would you do? What 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 comes to mind as an architect, right, in thinking about this place? And for most of them, this was like, you know, like I had no idea, you know, that this was even there, right? Here, you know, you have a living Aboriginal community, right? It has a presence, has a political role mm-hmm. of some sort, you have activists and so forth, you know. Um, in New England, it's 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 semiotic, 
right? Or it's in um, gambling uh, casinos, right? So, you, you know, the, the, the deep culture, the question of history is, is sort of doubly erased because one hand it's, you know, let's go to the uh, uh, Wampanoag and go gambling, mm-hmm. you know. And or, but, you know, who are the Wampanoag? Like, well, there seems to be a lot of anxiety, and this is something that we've recently discussed here at this conference at the HAN, is uh, how do teachers approach material they're very uncertain about, whether that's Aboriginal architecture or Native American architecture, or as you say, Mark, in your book, the architecture of first societies, right? right? How do we go about uh, gathering some of these types of knowledge? How do we overcome some of that that's right. fear in the classroom? Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting um, listening to what you have to say about um, the Wampanoag. So last year I had the opportunity to go to, well, I was actually visiting Phil Deloria at Harvard University on Sydney University's behalf, but I, um, being a linguist, I was interested in this Wampanoag language revival, which is yes. very strong, actually. Yes, it is. As um, a woman, Jessie Little Dobaird and her family have been leaders in that. So the first thing I did which is, it's, um, I guess why I'm saying this now is that there are these sort of two worlds we live in. If you're Indigenous, you are always looking for the Indigenous mm-hmm. because that's, what I, that's the world I live in. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other world. It's like sliding doors that's inhabited by everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I do go between the sliding doors. And when I find myself and the door closes and I end up on the other side where there are non-Indigenous people, that's when I feel colonised mm-hmm. because not because I've changed, but because there is no place for me in that other world, which is exactly what you're saying. So I go to Massachusetts, and the first thing I did was go find the Wampanoag Community Centre, which is quite a spectacular building, with this lovely entrance hall, and I went to the um, language classes, but it's in Cape Cod, surrounded by all these really, really boring buildings, (laughs) and and they've got the dance circle. For me, it was this highly animated place full of Indigenous people. And as I sat outside with my PhD student, who's Nimpa from Western New South Wales, another Aboriginal woman and a linguist, we sat outside and all these people sort of came out of literally the bush, which I'd expect here in Australia too. Yeah, like, who are you? Where are you from? What's your name? What's your country? All the stuff we do, you know, um, trying to, we, we say, who's your mob? So we're just sitting there and then they're telling us the real story of the Wampanoag community and how it is for people now. And they've all got the same challenges we've got here in Australia. So I there I'm not at all colonised. You know, I'm sitting in a space that is ab- absolutely Indigenous. And I think somehow we need to stop these sliding doors shutting. So you come through our door and stay with us, sit with us and get to know us. We've called our research strategy at Sydney University, Narangun, which is um, to sit, to listen, to learn and to think together. Mm. Um, so it's that togetherness and, and doing what you're talking about now where you actually think about what's around you. The, the landscape itself, as, as you were also saying, will tell you the story of the people and then the people are still there. You know, uh, we, we remain, you know, we have a saying in Australia, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And um, we, we are still present everywhere. It's just that nobody knows how to see us. That's right. And nobody <clears throat> wants to listen to us. Very few people. Um, it's, a, it's a great pleasure when there's an opportunity like this to actually share something and say, I'm, you know, of the snowy mountains in southeastern Australia. It's not just a ski resort. <laughs> <you know? laughs> 
Well, yeah. where I live, we yeah. uh, on this after visiting the uh, Massachusetts Mound. Yeah. Um, you know, I said, you know, Belmont was this Fitzroy. So we went to the Belmont Historical Society, and I said, "What's give us the first map you have of, of Belmont?" And so oh, they, they they showed us a map, and we're looking around it, and lo and behold, there is this circular structure um, that is now. Uh, uh, part of a uh, star market <laughs> over the star market and uh, it was uh, 50 feet around uh, a circular structure terraced uh, down um, over a spring and uh, some a man bought it uh, in, in, in 1790 because he thought uh, Leif Erikson he thought this was discovered by made by Leif Erikson Whatever, I mean, because the Vikings mm. or something like that. He wanted to show the Vikings were here. And so for like $5, you could go see this 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 thing, right? And you're going, of course, it is a Native American structure. Um, and then he died and he sold it, and then it was bought by somebody, and then they filled it in, and, uh. you know, it is, you know. So we're, we, we go down, we you know, drive along, right? And there's this sort of these houses over, over the site, you know. And it's, I mean, you know, it's just a tragedy and it's a strike, but it's sort of, you know, I felt, I don't know, a small little piece of pride in the fact that I discovered, you know, that there was actually a Native American site and a piece of architecture, more, not more than a mile away from where I live, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, just no, it's gone. It's been evaporated like so many other things, but it's still there. And every time I drive past it, yeah. you know, I do my little, you know, homage mm-hmm. to it, you know. Um, and these are the things, you know, I think we need to sort of stitch. These are little stitches, you know, especially for mm-hmm. people who are not Native American, who are not Aboriginal. Yeah. They need to learn that these are part of uh, living cultures that are now erased or voices or there's traces are still there. And if the traces aren't there, at least the memories are there, that we can still do something about that. I mean, there's, it's not too late, so to speak, to sort of recapture a certain type of uh, not just a culture but also a design capacity that's right. Yeah, we have these structures in Australia that um, in in southeastern Australia, particularly where people would build a base that you could then put a, a temporary um, structure on top of. You know, you see this all over the world. Indigenous communities, particularly nomadic communities or transhumance communities, can will build things that they can come back to because you don't want to have to do the all that base work every time you want to put up something, particularly, say, in snow country, you want something that you can fairly quickly erect um, something over the top of to give you shelter. Um, so, And these are, people don't even notice these. We've got great stone arrangements, um, again, something people do all over the world. And, you know, there have been all these crazy just sort of discussions about aliens creating things that uh, how could how could primitive people like mm. aboriginal people create something so massive and know what it would look like from the air well last time i checked that's basically what most people do when they use a plan you know you don't have to like fly up above it to look yeah. down on what your building or your massive structure is going to look like mm. you know and that's what we we did too we we knew what we were doing and and we knew what the purpose of our structures were. Some of them were um, to create um, indicators for ourselves for ceremonial purposes, um, for, you know, fun <coughs> gatherings. You know, we, we weren't all just the deadly serious, let's yeah. just do ceremony. You know, right. um, we, we, were, we still are 
um, Aboriginal people in Australia are still, I think, amongst the funniest people in the world. We, we laugh and joke all the time. And even when we're being really serious, people will break the seriousness with a, a bit of light humour. So, you know, we, we created things that we found were aesthetically pleasing and beautiful, but they worked in with our environment. We didn't go about like, oh, see that fabulous rock outcrop over there, let's carve some really ugly men into it. And just because they were American presidents, you know, let's put, you know, <laughs> um, you know, that's not something that we were onto is about altering beautiful natural formations, but we would um, enhance them and create additional um, formations. So all around Sydney, there are petroglyphs where people carved and, and used the contours of rocks to create images of things that were important to us and that would could be used for a whole range of purposes. Right. So particularly, of course, there's beautiful big whale carvings and stingray and um, all the various macropods, wallaby, um, kangaroo, mm. um, mysterious-looking um, transhuman sort of figures. Maybe they were the ones that came down and showed us how to lay out these great, you know, because we're all too primitive to do that. I like to think of it as like (laughs) intensifiers. That's right, yeah, yeah. They sort of add intensity to to something that's already dynamic and living. It's just that at some special place or some special time, something needed to be more um, to keep your attention or keep the narrative going and so forth, you know. Yeah. I think what you both have in common, I think, in your professional work, uh, Jackie, you being a linguist, mm. Mark, you being an architectural historian, is the act of resurrecting dead mm. things. So whether it's sites and buildings <laughs> that are buried, languages that dead. need to be... <laughs> right. But, so but, sleeping. But precisely or sleeping, sleeping, the things yeah. that are in need of, uh, what is it, uh, visibility, in need yeah. of um, mm. uh, essentially uh, bringing light to. Yeah. So in a way, you know, like linguists and historians are working with yeah. things that are in archives yeah, or true, things yeah. that are been more um, that need more excavation in that general That's sense. Right. Yeah. So how do you deal with the, the act of like of, of evidence, which is when the, the building <laughs> is not there or there's not enough of the language that is left? How do you how do you piece those things together? Maybe. Well, I face this, you know, practically in every page of the book that I wrote. Because evidence will come from uh, archaeology, which will make a trench, you know, and there'll be post holes or something like that. But mm-hmm. no archaeologist, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm speaking very generally, <laughs> will say, oh, uh, let's, let's figure out what those post holes meant, right, in terms of is it a circular structure or something like that, right? They wouldn't mm-hmm. draw it out, right, because it would be too risky because you're getting into some fictional, you know, what, mm-hmm. is, what is it, right? Um, uh, but... You know, I'm an architecture historian. I'm not an uh, archaeologist. I can take those post holes, I can put them on a the site, and I work with students, and I say, hey, mm. what, what do you think they were doing? You know, mm. And so we spent uh, three years, in fact, looking at these various sites, trying to reconstruct what they were looked like, right? Now, of course, you can't publish this in the Journal Society of Architectural Historians because they, there's no, it's all fiction. <laughs> but on the other hand, one needs to have these places reconstruct you know, as so you can see them as real spaces, as real buildings, as real structures, and not as just sort of uh, holes in the ground, right? And so that was so we didn't show any holes in the ground. We we showed these reconstructed things, even vaguely, you know, uh, things, and that was sort of one thing. And the other is to get the you know the we could say the mounds in on Mississippi tradition. You, you visit them now. 
uh, they're covered with grass. <clears throat> well, originally they weren't covered with grass. They were made out of clay, and the clay was brought from 10 miles or 100 miles away by the, the local population in baskets, and that it was the clay from their home site, right? And so this, these mounds were built with different colored clay mm. from the different colors of ground that were, you know, from the different people. So we, we know that because when you do the archaeology, it's like there's one side is red, one side is yellow, one side is, in other words, the color clay means something. Today, it's all just uh, grass, right? So you're, you're missing this extremely beautiful, colorful object in the landscape, right? Um, that was maintained lovingly because it had to be, you know, continuously damped down so it wouldn't get run off and things like that. So I tell the students, you know, let's work with their color theory. You know, let's look at sort of Native American color theory. And then we, we look at how color is related to uh, uh, orientation, color is related to animals, color is related to scale. I mean, you know, and because they just think color is just red, you know, and maybe passion or something like that, you know. Um, and then you say, well, color is related to the West, and it's related to this bird, and it's related to this, uh, you know, um, emotion, you know, and all that type of thing, all these things, you know. So there are different ways to sort of get the design part of it into the conversation. So we're really doing the same thing. <laughs> and um, in, in renewing languages, we talk about our languages as sleeping, the ones that aren't actively used, including my own, Nargu, which is really just beginning to wake up, if you like. Uh, there are some historical records for pretty much every language of Australia, but um, you're quite right in saying there are not always um, records, evidence, if you like, of how the language worked in full. So in my, my language is a good case. It's, um, it was very lightly documented and there are some sound recordings from the 20th century that are of people who may or may not have spoken my language. They may have spoken a neighbouring language. It's hard to know really because they, um, they had such a small amount of information about the language, if you like. But so what I can do is exactly what you're talking about, Mark, in predicting what something might have looked like mm -hmm. from the surrounding languages and languages we've got a better description of. We know um, structurally how it would work. So as you would say, well, if there's a post hole, it's probably holding something up, mm -hmm. or it could be a pole that's a decorative pole. So you've got a range of, I guess, um, reference points for how you would go about thinking about what a structure might have been. It's exactly the same with languages. We've got a range of reference points. And, of course, material culture and um, um, knowledge about our um, oral histories, the way in which we think about... We don't... In Aboriginal Australia, we don't think of history in a diachronic way. It's synchronic. It's always happening. So whatever has ever happened is still happening now. Um, doesn't mean we don't have a sense of something having happened a while ago, but it's also still having an impact now, so therefore it's still happening. So our worldview is quite different, um, our sense of time and our place in space. It's, it's never-ending. Uh, it's always renewing. So uh, we don't struggle quite so much with the idea of renewal and... I'm moving away from the word revival just because I'm finding it kind of horrifying in the world how there are these sort of religious cultists running, um, well, running Australia now as well as running the United States mm -hmm. and, you know, these big economies um, who are all about, you know, revivalism and making sure there's a, a one true way and all this nonsense. Okay. We, okay. We're not one true way people okay. as Indigenous <clears throat> people anywhere in the world. It's all about working with, um, you know, the, the, the truth is 
what's around you and what the world is in its own, what it's created for itself. So everything in our world is animated and has a life force. So you have to respect every rock, every grain of sand, every plant, every animal, every fish, bird, whatever, um, everything, even the air we're breathing, even illnesses. We have so-called dreaming stories is what they say in English. It sounds a bit like we're permanently stoned, but it's not the case. It's, you know, we, we have these stories that they're, they're always happening. Um, so everything, every illness, every sickness, some people have scabies as they're dreaming mm-hmm. or diarrhea mm-hmm. as they're dreaming because all these, um, you know, not everybody has cute fluffy animals as they're, mm-hmm. or scenic spots. You know, it's because everything has a place in our cosmology and... Um, you know, the earth and the sky, the waters and the land are all part of a continuum. We don't make the distinctions that non-Aboriginal people make, non-Indigenous people. And it's pretty, this is again pretty common, you would know that from North American Indigenous thinking. So we we sort of construct our world in a way that it, it's not that hard to predict how a language would have been used or spoken because the languages follow a sort of similar way of thinking and also the idea that it's okay to renew and to take a form and adapt it for your own purposes. We are adaptive, we are, if you like, opportunistic people. We wait for a moment and we take advantage of that moment. In some ways that's what happened when the British invaded in 1788. They didn't colonise us really. We've colonised the British just as much as they've colonised us. It's just that okay. not it's just not as obvious. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's not the rhetoric. If you just flip the story round, okay. I'm delighted that white fellas brought ski lifts. <laughs> I really find it exhausting walking up the mountain, yeah. um, whether it's on skis <laughs> or snowshoes or whatever. Yeah. It's great. Jump on a lift, up you go, you know, and you can slide yeah. down, have a great time. Well, yeah. excellent. I'll hang on to that bit of technology. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it doesn't disrupt the landscape too much and it's in a limited area. But, you know, so we're adaptive. I mean, Aboriginal people are people who take on the latest technologies. The first satellite telephone I ever saw was at a land council meeting in one of the most remote parts of Australia. And I was like, I have to ring back to Canberra to my bosses in government. And no worries, no worries over here, sis got this new phone you know it's a whole back of a truck it costs ten thousand dollars a second or something but here yeah ring hey murray i'm calling you from lake nash you know so you know we and we've always been technological um developers too so just so to kind of get our languages going again means to use these constructive collaborative collaborative with an emphasis on that we ask our neighbors can we borrow the way you do something and we can rebuild what we used to do, predicting as you do with what a, a structure might have looked like in the ground. When you, all you've got are the post holes, you can imagine what yeah. else happened. So, so the, uh, we were just talking earlier about the teepee, you know. Mm. So when I talk about teepee, first of all, it's owned and controlled by women. Mm-hmm. So this is like yeah, most people yeah. are going like, really? Yeah. yeah. You know, and when you're inside, it's a gendered space. You have to behave in a particular way, right? And... So it's, there's a fire, and the fire has a little uh, smoke, and the smoke uh, talks to the ancestors, and it goes through the, the, the hole and all that. And it's a, basically a diagram of the world, right? So it is a vertical diagram, and it's got a place for the, you know, if, if you're don't part of the inner circle of the CP, you're, I mean, there's a power place in the back, and then there's a side place, and so forth and so on, right? So it's a diagram, it's a horizontal world of humans, a diagram's a world of animals, and a diagram's a world of ancestors. 
I said, well, let me compare that with my house, which I live in, right? <laughs> All right, it diagrams nothing, right? Except uh, there's the entrance, there's the living room. I mean, so it diagrams in some sense my function, Mm. But it doesn't diagram my, it's, it's not a telephone to my ancestors. Right? Mm. The TP is basically one of the great technological devices you can imagine, right? I go in the TP and boom, I'm talking to my ancestors, right? I mean, what a kind of, it's a fantastic technology, right? Mm. So I, I, I can't do that. I can, you know, I put a fire in my living room, you know, forget it, right? So my house in, in, that I live in, you know, is completely like muted, silenced, uh, deformed in a particular way, right? Because it's like it's it's structurally incapable of doing all the things that a simple TP could do. Mm. Um, and then you know, I ask them students, okay, now if if that's my my house, which is supposed to be good, right? It's modern, it has all the benefits, and all, you know. Uh, but if I could take some of those benefits, but now I want a uh, I want a living capacity to talk to my ancestors. You know, I want to talk, be able to talk to uh, the fish down below. You know, I want to be able to talk to uh, the air and whatever it is. Uh, design that for me. Right. And at first they sort of freak out. You know? <laughs> it's like, this is not what we signed yeah. up for at MIT, you know. <laughs> I said, well, then now you're getting anxious. Now you're, this is good. Do it. Figure something out. And sure enough, yeah. one way or the other, they come up with solutions that are sort of, you know, and there's no rhyme. I mean, there's no way to look at this stuff and say that's better or worse because you're just trying to get them to sort of actually relax from the assumptions about what architecture should be and how it should perform. You know, and that's the language of another vernacular. You know, that's what I. Um, I mean, I went into linguistics from a background in art, really fine art and anthropology and archaeology, and linguistics was what it sounds like. It's a way of articulating things and. Um, it's interesting as you talk about the teepee, that's the kind of, we look around ourselves as Aboriginal people and think, well, what can we repurpose without um, destroying it or modifying its integrity to uh, interpret what we're thinking about the world? So the spaces speak to us. So my mother said to me, the up in those sentinel rocks at the top of, or near the very top of the highest mountain in Australia, Kunamanamajiya Mountain, um, there is this women's site. And you look at it, and if you look at it casually, you wouldn't see it. But then as my mother said, look, here is the female form. You know, this is an increased site. It's a women's site. And my daughter, she said my daughter had been drawn towards it to as my daughter went in that direction <coughs> to put a snow crow, not a snowman, but a snow crow, mm. on top of this pointy rock, which is the indicator for where this women's site is. It was just amazing. And um, so it's like, you know, the landscape tells you all the time what it's there for. It's always been, right. we say it's always been there for that purpose. We just have to find that purpose, and that's what we're doing as humans. So... Um, it's, uh, I, I remember teaching my visual arts students to, uh, to use, I guess, an Indigenous sensibility, an Australian sensibility in art making. And I had people who'd come from, um, um, if you like, jewellery designing, um, from um, printmaking, mm -hmm. photography. And they were so nervous about using about somehow being accused of copying or, I mean, as, as, as if copying's ever been a problem in any kind of art making, but um, but copying something that they would then breach, a, you know, some kind of code of ethics around Indigenous um, artworks. But 
I said, look, what we do when we map, we map by looking down and we use, you know, the ground. We might draw in the sand or we might, um, you know, dribble. People now dribble paint or in the past we would have used ochres and things and, and created installations that told the story of the land. So it's not a literal cadastral map, mm. but it's it's a, you know, here is this marker and over here this thing happened and so we've got a, a design that will indicate that. And these um, then there are tracks through to this next place, which has an important um, significance. So people will read um, what looks like an Aboriginal. It's it's an artwork certainly, but it's a um, it's a piece of communication <clears throat> about how people interact with country and with each other and tell our history. So um, and I I, the, I had the same experience with my students who are like, <gasps> how do we do this? And I said, well, think about what you do every day and create a, a map that's not a cadastral map, but what is significant in your life, and then lay that down in any way you want. And it was so freeing for them because suddenly they were enjoying yeah. talking about yeah. their lives but using their own visual arts practice, what they call visual arts, which is what we as Indigenous people do. We make and create and we tell our stories and everything we do, every, every as you say, every dwelling we make, every environment we modify has got a multiple purpose it's never just a right i'm going to go and live in this block here and then i'm going to go off and do something over here everything's interconnected and all has that and and is interconnected with our our past and our present and our future right so you know and i think when when i wrote the book architecture first i said is i use the word architecture which is you know like what else could i use (laughs) but i want to make sure people understand i'm not talking about huts (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm talking about architecture, serious stuff here, you know, if you want to. And that was the only word available, even though it sort of comes with its own baggage. But it wasn't, you know, you know, there's a book that came out called The Shelters of Africa, right? And it, it's a wonderful book, but they, the, 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 the things that they talk about are not shelters. These are chiefdom uh, houses that are, I mean, blow your mind away. They're so beautiful, right? So there was a moment in the 70s and 80s when it was assumed that the uh, you know, they're coming out of the Enlightenment that, oh, people woke up one day and it was raining and they said, oh, my God, I need a shelter, right? <laughs> and so basically the Aboriginals sort of stuck in the shelter world, right? And then people yeah. went on. Right? Well, yeah. this is complete nonsense, you know. So I wanted to just sort of get away from all that and said, you know, 100,000 B.C., whenever we can first start the first sort of whole, whole postal, right? That's architecture. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, the Parthenon. But it's people making space. These were dance spaces, you know. So there are community spaces, there are social spaces. They're doing something in the earth, right? They're cleaning the earth. They're just, you know, whatever that is. And that's just simplified by not categorizing it into, just call it sort of one thing, right, architecture. Mm-hmm. And some of it has to do also with, you know, visiting sites. So we, I went with a colleague to Hovindweep, which is on the border between Utah uh, and, and, and Denver. And it's in a canyon, and we're there. And it was in the afternoon. And all of a sudden, we look up, and we're just like, oh, my God. We understood why it was there because a canyon opens up into mm-hmm. this V, and and the structures are in there. And then when you look out over the V from the te- from the top, there's a little tower. Mm-hmm. What you see is uh, what it turns out to be eight mountains, right? In in real times, but from that view is a man sleeping on the horizon, right? So all the mountains congeal when the sun mm-hmm. sets into this sort of shape, and it's as clear as day. It's a man sleeping right on the horizon, right? He got his head, he got yeah. his tummy, he got his feet sticking out, and all that type of stuff. You know? And you go, 
I mean, why, you know, when you read archaeological mm-hmm. records, when, you know, we were, we were scholars, right? We, we, we read all the 15 articles about this so that we came prepared, right? Not a single article basically told you the most basic thing that this is a site having to do with that mountain that appears mm-hmm. at night or in the late afternoon, you know, mm-hmm. with the, the, the sleeping person, sleeping dead or whatever it is. You know? And they didn't even mention it. And we have, this and that's where you would start. Yeah, when you think of a conversation, and you know. we we have that all over Australia. I was just thinking about there's a place called Gundabuka um, on the Cobar Plain in western New South Wales, where it's by army sleeping, and it's just it's so obvious. And in Canberra, where is it's, it's not my traditional country, but it's right next door, the mm. Nunawal country. There are there's a there are the legless lizards, and the right. mountains there are the legless lizards, and. Right. Um, the story of my own mountains being snowy breasts, basically, that um, mountains are breasts because our mountains are that sort of undulating shape. Mm -hmm. Um, You hear this term used elsewhere in the world, um, in Ireland, um, in the McGillicuddy Reeks area, there are mountains known as the Paps, which are the breasts. And um, so, you know, as my 16-year-old daughter and I drove out of Threadbow in our snowy mountains, Last week, she said, "Yes, snowy boobies yeah. everywhere." It's yeah, just yeah. <laughs> so it's reading. We talk about reading country, yeah. and um, you know why? Why would you try and build something if there's something already there that could never be built? It's just so on such a scale and so obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Indigenous people do: is understand the entire landscape. And then, as you said, embellish embellish it um, rather than um, blowing it up and building something else or digging a giant hole to put a car park or something in some beautiful geological structure. So, you know, much as I love the Sydney Opera House, I'm sure everyone does, um, it destroyed a pretty beautiful um, scenic point. Um, in the middle of Sydney Harbour, there was a magnificent island that now has a sandstone... Uh, what was has been a jail. It's called Fort Denison. It was a fort to repel the Russians, I believe, because um, they've been a huge threat to us. That's a, <laughs> I say tongue in cheek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, they flattened this island that was one of the the most scenic islands in the harbour. That was a beloved place of Aboriginal people, mm. and um, where people, well, you know, the British recorded that the Aboriginal families would paddle out there and have picnics and dances and, you know, cavort and have fun. So the first thing the British did was turn it into an island where they would hang people in chains to die because that was a good way of getting rid of people they didn't who'd committed some crime. But, you know, so it turned it into a ghost or mong island. Um, So it scared all the Aboriginal people off it. And then eventually they blasted it, flattened it and built this... Sandstone out of the Sydney sandstone, which shouldn't have been cut up oh. anyway. But see, this would be a great this. design problem. Yeah, you know what to do with this, not yeah. to make a memorial. Yeah, you know, which yeah. I mean could be circulated, obviously. Yeah. But how do we deal with the layers of these histories and these yeah. tragedies and this sort of yeah. representational issues? I mean, yeah. like this Fort would Denison be a studio problem. <laughs> you know, put 
put some smart design kids on there and have them come up with some solutions. You know? I think this leads me into my last question for both of you. And um, I think you both have painted really vivid descriptions of the world of languages, of the world of buildings. Mm -hmm. Do you have a last piece of advice for university students who want to see the world in the way you see all these things, whether it's languages or whether it's architecture? What, what, do you have any last bits of advice for, for the students out there so that they can begin embracing some of these uh, amazing kind of phenomenon or landscapes or um, sites? People. I guess I'd say don't be quite so discipline specific. Um, <laughs> as I said, much as I'm a linguist, I, you know, I think to really see and understand the world, you've got to be polymathic and you've got to leave your mind open to other possibilities, range widely, bring back real arts scholars, um, locate architecture and linguistics and all these other um, disciplines within a broader dialogue um, that also is located in the place where you're studying. So if you're studying on Aboriginal land, understand it. If you're on Gadigal country, know about the Gadigal and really see Sydney University is a kangaroo ground. It's not just a learning institution. It's an, a place of great importance to Aboriginal people now as well as in the past. It's not a past tense thing. We are not the most primitive people on earth. We are the most sophisticated in many ways, people on earth. Um, and I think the sophistication of Indigenous peoples worldwide is something that needs to be embraced and brought much more firmly into these quite primitive academies. Uh, I agree completely. I think the advantage that architecture has is because we don't write term papers, right? We do, do things, right? So the, it can also be the problem, <laughs> if you will. But if we just assume on what that potential means, right? So if we think of doing these exercises, going to these sites, learning about the site, learning about the layers and the complexities of these histories, right? And then sort of not just sort of saying, let me design a, a, a tourist center or let me design a, a, a space for video or whatever. But let me sort of think something, you know, through here, all this, where we, where architecture can actually help narrate these complex stories, right? Then I think we're moving the right direction. This is, you know, but this is so hard to do because we everyone says, oh, we need to, we have a housing problem. We have, we don't have time for this, right? If we need a thousand people, we need a housing block, right? Or we need an office block or we need this block, right? We don't have time for that. Well, I'm saying that can go somewhere else, but I think as long as architecture is connected to academe, we have the the urgency now more than ever to really sort of rethink how certain pedagogies work. Um, and, you know, 20 years ago would not even have been dreamed as possible. Now, I think because the interconnectivities of certain types of uh, um, activisms, it's certainly like, wow, this is really possible now, you know, and so we should do it. Well, I think on that bright, hopeful note, thank you, Mark, for being on the show. Thank you, Jackie. Pleasure. It was a pleasure having both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.